You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Daughter's first time playing. Um, my daughter rolled a six, which means that you can choose anything on the card and draw. She looks over the whole card and is like, I got it. And she picks something and then she goes up and she starts drawing this picture of what looks like a person with money next to their mouth. And we're like saying, money, mouth, next, I don't know. And she was like, it's close, it's close. And at the very end of it, she was like, no, no, time's out. It's put your money where your mouth is. And she had no concept of what that meant, but she was like, oh, money and mouth, I can draw that. And I remember thinking like, how strange, you had the entire card. You could have chosen any of those and you chose that one. Well, as I teach today, I say that because a lot of you are going to think that about the psalm that I, t- that I picked. There's like 150 that I could have chosen from, right? Um, but I chose Ch- uh, Psalm 106. Psalm 106 happens to be, I think, number five in the list of longest psalms. So get ready. We're going to be here for four hours. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? Um, so Psalms 106 is actually a very, very long, detailed psalm. Um, if you don't know, I actually teach a middle school Bible class at a Christian school locally here. Uh, some of our people have been through that class with me already. I know Emma's in that class right now. She's tired of hearing me talk every day. But uh, there will be times where I go into t- kind of a teacher mode because that's what I'm used to. But the difficulty of this week was I'm trying to really think about how to take things from like an academic approach to a pastoral approach for you. Um, so um, I'll try to be brief. Uh, it will feel like I'm flying through this at like an airplane's level looking down at the, the scenery. And that's because we have to. It's a very, very long psalm. And again, though, the reason why I chose this psalm is primarily because it's Thanksgiving, we're heading into Advent, and I was thinking about all the things that Adam actually taught us last week about all of the reasons that we should feel grateful, all the reasons that we should be thankful for all that God has done. But for me, I don't know, if anyone else in this room ever feels like a failure, because I know I do, Psalm 106 was just an opportunity for me to think about God's faithfulness and my gratitude for his faithfulness in a different light. And that light is the light of Psalm 106. So, of course, in a musical way, I'm going to have my summary sentence kind of flow like my brain works. So here's the summary sentence for today. In the song of redemption, if there was a song, the many verses of man's failure and the severity of sin's consequences can never overshadow the chorus of God's faithfulness. We will do well to consider history in our daily fight for faith. So a very simple way to put that is God's grace is greater than all of our sin. There's a great hymn that talks about that. But again, in the song of redemption, there are plenty, numerous verses of man's failure and the consequence and the severity of that failure. But in all of that failure that we see in the history of the Bible, there's nothing that can overshadow the chorus or the refrain of God's faithfulness. Now, if you're not musical, you don't understand what, what do I mean by that? When we play up here for you, there's ways that songs are kind of organized. There's verses and there's the chorus. That's the thing that we go back and sing over and over and over again. The verses kind of lead you to the chorus. And even nowadays, there's songs that have bridges in them. And those bridges point you back to the chorus in another way as well. So there's verses of man's failure all over the Bible. But there's a chorus or a refrain of God being faithful. So, of course, I could have chosen a psalm that talked about God's faithfulness. In fact, Adam mentioned last week that he and I and others, some of you, have been greatly impacted by the work and ministry of John Piper in the past. 
And many, many years ago when I read his book called Future Grace, there's one line in one chapter that really, really shaped me. And it was this, a confidence in someone's future reliability is grounded in a history of past faithfulness. So you might have to think about that a little bit slower. Me being confident in someone else in the future, thank you, being reliable is only grounded if there's a history of past faithfulness. If someone says, hey, I'm going to pick you up tomorrow at 3 p.m., but they have a history of never picking me up when they tell me they're going to, I have zero confidence that they're going to be there tomorrow at 3 p.m. But if they're always on time every single day and they tell me, I'll be there tomorrow at 3 p.m., you better believe I'm going to believe that and have confidence in that. Psalm 105 is a great psalm to go to talk about God's covenant faithfulness. Everything in the positive light. And of course, I chose Psalm 106. And it's everything in the negative. In fact, I could say, John Piper didn't say this, but I could say confidence in someone's future unreliability is grounded in a history of past unfaithfulness. And that's what Psalms 106 is about. But it doesn't end there. It's not man's a failure. The end. It's God's still faithful in the midst of all that. So Psalms 106 is the negative form. So maybe if I, uh, you know, do a great job of uh, unpacking this for you, maybe I can convince Adam wherever he is to do Psalm 105 next week. Now, before we get into this, um, I need to give you a kind of a brief history of Israel. And this is where I'm going to put on my teacher hat. I I found these like icons inside Keynote. And so (laughs) some of these work, others don't. I mean, that one about the Red Sea is like a a wind that was this way. So I turned it this way and (laughs) doubled it. So some of these are a stretch, but... I think with pictures, they can help. So quickly, a brief history of Israel goes like this. God creates the world. That's not even on the screen. There's, you can imagine like a world. He creates uh, Adam and Eve, turns into uh, the, the flood, lots of people. Then they are called to spread out. They don't. God brings the Tower of Babel. Then he calls Abram. Abraham's family grows into a nation, and they're stuck in Egypt for over 400 years in slavery. But then God rescues them out. He takes them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. Great miracle. We'll talk about the day. They travel a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. They arrive at Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses is going to go up on Mount Sinai. God's going to introduce himself to the people. He's going to give them his law. Hey, I'm the God that rescued you out of Egypt. Uh, I'm the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here is my law. They're going to spend a year there uh, learning how to live under God's authority. That's where the book of Leviticus takes place, all at the foot of Mount Sinai. Then God's going to say, okay, we've got this in order. Let's go. They're going to travel another couple weeks to the edge of the promised land, and they're like there, right? They could have just went in, and as we're going to see today, they don't. They reject God. They rebel against his word, and so they turn around, and they turn around, and that turning around detour isn't the same of like you driving somewhere for a couple hours and forgetting something and having to go back and get it. That that alone would be terrible. A couple hours. This is 40 years of detour. Numbers. Until that entire generation that rejected God dies off. Then they get an opportunity, their kids do really, to come back to the edge of the promised land and have another chance to go in. And this time they choose to trust God and they'll go in. And of course everything looks like it's going to go well, except it doesn't. Then in the time of Judges, people continually do this cycle. Sin leads to slavery, leads to some form of repentance, short-lived. God sends a deliverer to save them, and they have peace in the land, and it leads back to sin. 
slavery, sorrow, salvation, sin, slavery, sorrow, salvation, over and over and over, probably about seven times it cycles downward, downward, downward. Darkest time of Israel's history, book of Judges. Very disturbing, especially the latter half. Then there's a guy named Samuel. He comes along in the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. There's kings set up. Uh, there's going to be a kingdom. Things are going great, except the kings are just like all the other unfaithful Israelites, and they fail. Kingdom splits, and then eventually God has to send both kingdoms into exile. Okay, now the history goes on. They're in exile for about 70 years. Then God sends them back, and there's about a period of 400 years of silence, and then Jesus. So the history of the Old Testament is really not that long and in-depth. It's just a couple of symbols here, and then the cross is on the other side of the exile. Very, very close. Now, Psalm 106 is going to cover the history of in Egypt, in the wilderness, and in the promised land. And the red arrow there for in exile is because that's where I believe this psalm was written. Okay, So it's going to cover history in Egypt, in the wilderness, and the promised land. So who wrote it? We actually don't know. It's anonymous. It's unknown. Some commentators believe it was David. I am in the category of believing that it was written by someone in the Babylonian uh, captivity. I could be wrong about that, but there's a couple of in-context verse references in verse 4 through 5 and 47 that give me clues that the psalmist is yearning to return to the land. So it's probably sometime during the exile and captivity, which is signaled right there. Now let me make a note that if you're listening through a podcast or you're listening somewhere where you're not able to see the screen, you'll be able to find these notes through the link in the description. Um, next, what is it? Psalms 106 is a song or a prayer because we're in the book of Psalms of national confession. At one time, it even was a conclusion to the Psalms. In fact, if you are looking in your Psalm, in your, in your Bible right now at the end of Psalm 106, there will be a Roman numeral five and it says book five. So the book of Psalms is not actually one book. It's a collection of five books took a long time to collect and gather together. And at one time in history, when Psalm 106 was written, and we're going to cover it today, hopefully, that was the end. That was it, right? It was the conclusion of the Psalms. But here's what's crazy. It's a history, it's a national confession of their failure. Normally, like in historical societies or whatnot, you'd have people trying to cover up their failures, cover up all the terrible things that happened in their past, and yet this is an open and honest rebuke about their own sin. It's open and honest. It's a confession. And here's the pattern and the posture of prayer. This A, B, C, B, A pattern is how this psalm is going to unfold. The psalmist is going to start with praise. Then he's going to go to petition. And for the kids, if you don't know what that word means, it just means like that's them bringing the request. He's asking. Then confession admitting the sin, then back to petition, and then back to praise. So if I was in Bible class, I'd be teaching the kids something along the line of the posture would be like someone on their knees with their hands straight up, praising God, and then bringing it out, asking a request, and then covering their face and falling on the ground, and then getting back up and requesting, and then ending with praise. So reach up, reach out, cover the face, reach back out, reach back up. This is maybe how he even did it whenever he was originally writing this, is using this pattern and posture of prayer. Um, Before we get started, let me just tell you um, a thing about prayer. If you notice here, confession 
is the largest section of this prayer. There's 40 verses of confession. There's like one verse of asking a request, 40 verses of confession, another one verse request, and then praise. Did you know, especially kids in here too, that when we pray to God, it's not just a time that we bring our needs to him. It absolutely includes that. But our prayers, at least I hope today, can grow to a point where we see that prayer should be more than just asking God for stuff. Right? We come to God to bring our needs, but what if we had a more full, robust prayer life? And that prayer life maybe included praising God for all the many wonders and works that he's done, bringing petitions, but confessing our sin. There's a couple of models I'll remind you at the end, but there's a, the word pray could be like an acronym. P for praise, R for repent, A for ask, and Y for yield or submit and trust, or acts A, adoration, C, confession, T, thanksgiving, S, supplication. It's a different, robust approach to prayer. And by the way, the last thing I'll say before we pray and get into this is that because of the length of this confession, there is this honest, open rebuke of sin. You might could say that this person, if he was living in 2021, would be spending way too much time thinking about their past failure. He needs to move on and forgive himself and, and forget and think about positive thoughts. But I think that that's honestly a 2021 type of mindset that's not really found here. In fact, what we find in the Psalms is a lot of times people are returning to the Psalms, returning to their history, even their failures, and trusting God to forgive them for that. But they're not the ones responsible to try to forget it. In fact, maybe remembering it is more helpful. So some of you walk into this room like me, bringing a history of past unfaithfulness to the table. And I don't want you to be discouraged, but I'm also not going to tell you, hey, listen, just forget about all that and pretend like that never happened. In fact, what I'm going to instead tell you to do is turn to Jesus and trust that if you've given him your faith, that he has covered that, then leave the forgiveness to him. But our responsibility might should probably remember where we've come from. So with that said, let's pray. Father, I pray, God, as we get into this text, Lord, that you would help us. That is our petition. But God, we want to praise you today for your steadfast love that endures forever. God, we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for receiving the grace, the things that we don't deserve, but also receiving mercy, which is not getting what we do deserve. God, thank you so much. I pray that you would help us to see that in this psalm. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 106, if you'll look in your Bible, we're going to go through this quickly. It says, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all of his praise? Blessed or happy are they who observe justice and who do righteousness at all times. The psalmist is in the midst of the exile, not from home, at least according to what I believe about when it was written. And he starts this not with a, an immediate request for salvation. It starts with God you are awesome. You are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. In fact, this praise the Lord is the word hallelujah. And as someone who sings that word a lot, it might be helpful to remind myself that when we sing hallelujah, it means praise God, but it's not just like a statement like, oh, wow, praise God. It's a call. Hey, you, praise Yahweh. Praise God. And I thought about that like, man, oftentimes I'm around Sarah or someone else, and something will happen, and she'll be like, praise God. What if I heard that the way I was supposed to. And I was like, oh, okay, hold on. God, thank you. And I started praising him. 
right? Because that's the, the definition of what it means. Hallelujah. You praise God. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then a couple of rhetorical questions. Who, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? Can you? Who can declare all of his praise? Not me. Blessed are they or happy are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. What we're going to find out in this psalm, there's no one that does righteousness at all times. But blessed or happy would be somebody who did. And the psalmist is yearning to see that. Then his request or petition, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation and that I may glory with your inheritance. Oh God, remember me when you show favor to your people. This is an absolute prayer request rooted in faith. I'm in the midst of exile and punishment, which by the way, when we get to the end of this psalm, like I don't feel like that guy the psalmist should have any assurance that God's going to turn around and save him. But he knows. He knows because he's rooted in God's promise. God's promise, his covenant. He says, when you show favor to your people, help me when you save them. So God, I know that you're going to save them, but my request is, could it be during my lifetime? Could I experience your great salvation? I've heard of your great and mighty deeds. I'm currently in a generation that's being punished for a lot of our wickedness. But God, would you come and show prosperity to your chosen ones? Can you do that here and now? Can I see that so that I can rejoice in the gladness of your nation? If you look ahead, I don't actually know because I didn't print my notes. But at the end of the psalm, you can find that other petition that I showed on the other screen. You can see and kind of compare the opposite ends and they're very similar. His, his, his request here is very similar to the one at the end. Now he turns it to the large group of confession. Confession. Psalm 106, verse 6 is where everything transitions. Oh God, both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Again, he's not covering this up. He's not trying to sugarcoat this. He comes right out and says, God, we, I'm including myself in all of the sin I'm about to historically show. Me and we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity and we've done wickedness. Some commentators break that all up. I think it's one and the same, what he's saying. But sin might be that those times when they're breaking God's law and they don't really even know it. Uh, iniquity are the times where they're breaking it and they do know it. And wickedness are the times where they're breaking it and they know it and they don't care. Right? There's different attitudes of sin, but we've done them all. The first thing that he's going to confess is a confession of rebellion. It's in verse 7 through 12. It says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. This rebelled, this refusal to obey, this refusal to go forward or do what God said to do. He says, this is what our history starts with. The national history of Israel starts with people rebelling against their king at the Red Sea. On the screen, you can see that I put a little arrow to kind of remind you where we're going. This would have been right after they left Egypt that night, getting to the shore of the Red Sea and already turning around on God. Now, don't be quick to judge them because we often do the exact same thing. I'm going to read just a couple of verses from Exodus 14, 1 through 4. 
It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piahirath between Migdal and the sea. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and then I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 10, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. Now, I'm not, I'm not hating on them for fearing. I would have been in the camp in the front of the line, scared to death, complaining about everything. That's me. But God had just said, I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh and rescue you. And then they see it. They go by what they see. And the people of Israel cried out to God, direct their complaint directly to him. And they say to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Oh, we get it, old man. You showed up not to take us to some promised land, but you're working with Pharaoh because they've run out of graves. And so you had to bring us down by the ocean and slaughter us here and throw us in the sea. That must be what you're doing here. It is because there's no graves in Egypt they've taken us away to die. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not what we said to you in Egypt? Just leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. We'd rather have our slavery, please. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I love what Moses says. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just need to be silent. Be quiet. Just watch what God's going to do. Watch. Psalm 106, back to your Bible if it's right there. Verse 7 talks about what happens then. Yet he saved them. In the midst of their rebellion, God saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. Miracle, like a thousandfold right there. We often hear that far too familiar story, never think about that. The sea became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Verse 12 um, no, I'm sorry, verse 31 in chapter 14 of Exodus says, Israel then saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. They were fearing the wrong person the first time, and now they're fearing God, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Psalm 106 says in verse 12, they then believed his words and sang his praise. So they had to see it first before they believed, but now that they've seen it, they, they, they believe him, they trust him now, they sing his praise, everything's good, and they lived happily ever after. Right? No. Got a long way to go. Remember, they did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember. Well, what were they supposed to remember? Well, if, if you know this, the story in context, they just left Egypt. They just saw God pour out 10 plagues against Egypt in a miraculous way that even the, la- the latter half of those plagues were making a distinction. These plagues are happening to the Egyptians and not to God's people. They've seen God work wonders. And in the middle of the night of the last plague that they just saw God do, they go to the edge of the sea and they forgot. Sounds a lot like me. They did not consider your works. They did not remember. A quick note about remembering. Israel is often called to remember by their leaders at the end of their lives. 
So at the end of their lives, and we'll start with Moses in Deuteronomy 32. We'll jump ahead. He's about to die. He's going to say, don't forget. Then you get to Joshua, the guy that took over for him at the end of his life. Hey, guys, don't forget. Then you get to Samuel, the guy I told you about earlier, at the end of his life. Don't forget. You get to even King David. He's like, man, we've, we've set up the kingdom here. This is great. My son, don't forget. Forgetfulness is often what leads to sin. And so part of our application, if you go ahead and tell you at the end, is going to be to remember. And we remember God's word various ways. The conclusion of this section here is we can remember the power of God and fight rebellion by looking to Jesus. In our lives today, we are going to be tempted towards rebellion. God tells us to do something. It's our natural inclination as human and sinful nature to say, no, I don't want to. It starts really early with my children. I've seen it. It continues even in my time now. But we can fight that rebellion by remembering the power of God and all the mighty things that he's done. How many times have I seen God work miracles and provision in my life and yet I immediately doubt? Uh, lots of things, whether it's possessions or circumstances. I mean, my truck just broke the last couple of weeks. We've been dealing with that. My truck breaks down and I'm like, oh no, what's happening? Like everything's bad. It's like, wait, 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 wait. If I would just consider what God has done in the past, then won't, shouldn't that give me confidence about what he's going to do in the future? He never promised that our trucks would always work, but he did promise to be with me and to sanctify me. And maybe I need my truck to be broken so that I can learn something. Hopefully it was for more than just a sermon illustration because that's an expensive sermon illustration. But anyways, they did not consider they forgot his work. And get this, Jesus is the ultimate picture of what God has done in his faithfulness. Jesus is the greater salvation. We're not escaping Egypt and slavery to Pharaoh. We have an opportunity to escape sin, to escape God's own wrath, and he's already provided it. We don't go through the Red Sea. We go through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So if you're not a Christian in this room today, whether you're a child or an adult who's been rebelling against God in your heart for years, do not overlook this fact that God has already provided the way and source of salvation for your life. Don't be like the Israelites or like me and my sin and rebel against God and miss out on that. Jesus is a greater Savior. In fact, Hebrews, if I could find it, yep, chapter 2, says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape? So rebellion is the first sin he confesses. Then the psalmist confesses their discontentment in verses 13 through 15. But they soon forgot his works. Again, they did not wait for his counsel, but they had this wanton craving, this lustful desire in the wilderness, and they put God to test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but he sent a wasting disease among them. This talks about uh, the Israelites expressing their discontent, which, by the way, happens a lot in the book of Numbers. But there's also a time in Exodus 16, like right after they are rescued from the great sea, they immediately turn to God and they start grumbling and complaining, discontent about their, their food. In fact, I'm, I'm looking literally to the next column because that's how close we are in, in Exodus 16, verse 2 and 3, it says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Oh, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by our meat pots and ate bread to the full. 
for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Oh, if we could just go back to Egypt where we had meat in pots, it's better than being saved from slavery. But the biggest part, Psalm 106, is actually not talking about Exodus 16. It's talking about Numbers chapter 11, which happens after Mount Sinai. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read to you just a few verses here. It says in Exodus 11, uh, 1 through 9, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlining parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord. The fire died down, but they didn't learn. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The people of Israel also wept again. Oh, if we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. By the way, in Exodus, the first time they complained, God provided miraculous heaven bread like I can't even describe it. The best of the Bible kind of makes me think of it. It's kind of like the tops of like croissant rolls, sort of flaky and honey-like. But it comes out of the sky, and it's there every morning when you wake up. And all you got to do is go outside and kind of gather it up and eat it. And now on the other side of Mount Sinai, a year or so later, all we have is this manna that God's provided, discontentment. Let me make sure I yep, covered that. Uh, here's how we can fight discontentment in our own hearts. We can remember the blessings of God and fight dis- discontentment by looking to Jesus. It's the same thing. All of my slides are going to be the same. They just swap it out. We've got to look to Jesus. We remember different things about God's blessing. We tend to always want what we don't have. At least sometimes I do. We need to instead consider his faithful provisions and trust in Jesus. Remember his words in Matthew 6 is that he's going to take care of us. He's going to give us all that we need. And yet sometimes all that we need doesn't include all that we want and it's our sinful inclination to grumble and complain about it. So we need to fight that by remembering God's blessings. Next, he goes into 16 through 18 in Psalm 106. We're making good progress. He's making confessions of envy, national envy. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan or Dothan and covered the company of Abiram Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. This envy is seen in a couple places too. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses' own sister and brother are going to grumble and murmur about why is Moses going to be the guy that leads? We prophesy too. And then Miriam's going to break out in leprosy and have to spend seven days outside the camp. But again, the psalm is referring to the time in Numbers. In Numbers chapter 16, just two verses from that, so you hear the the repetition of these verses. Uh, it says, uh, They rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. They said, You've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy. Everybody's holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the rest of the people? They're envious of Moses' position. Everybody else here is God's people. What makes you so special? And they envy his position. Well, the sad story is that Moses basically says, look, you go get censers and put fire in it, bring it to the tent of meeting. I'll do the same. And whoever God is like working with, he's going to let us know that. And in the process of all that, the earth opens up and swallows all the complainers and the grumblers, the people that brought this charge against Moses. 
remember the goodness of God and fight envy by looking to Jesus. When I was making my notes, I'm trying to think, what does envy, how does it show itself in my life? But remember, envy is wanting something. It's not just discontentment, like, oh, I wish things were different. It's so-and-so has something that I don't have, and I want it. Whether that's position or possession, you name it, a, a circumstance, it seems like everybody is always in some ways tempted towards envy. Whether you're married, you may want to not be married. If you're not married, you want to be married. You have kids, you don't want to have kids. You don't have kids, you want to have kids. Everybody has a position that they've been given by the Lord in his goodness. And yet, we're often tempted to doubt his goodness and want what we don't have. That's seen in the garden, right? Adam and Eve were given all the trees that were good for fruit. It wasn't just the one that said, God said, don't touch it. That'd be like me walking into a toy store and telling my kids not to touch a toy. It's impossible for them not to want that. But he gave them every tree that was good for food. And he said, just not this one. And Eve didn't just want the fruit because it was like better than the rest of the fruit. Satan got his hook in her by telling her, God knows something. He's withholding something from you that you don't have. And he has it, you don't. Don't you want it? And she doubted the goodness of God and took. Adam's obviously held responsible for all that sin because he was standing right there. So don't also fall into the trap of thinking Adam's off petting a cheetah somewhere and, and Eve falls and comes and finds him and says, look at what I've done. And Adam's like, oh no. And Romeo and Juliet style's like, if you die, I must die with you or something weird and wacky. He's standing right there with her. He knows the word of God and the goodness of God and he doesn't stand up against the temptation of Satan. He says, yeah, I, I don't know if I can trust God's goodness either. I mean, he made me out of dirt and gave me life, but maybe he's not good. Maybe he doesn't have what's best for me. And we need to remember that. We can look to Jesus who's promised to work these things in our life as well. The situations that God gives us today, do we trust his goodness enough to trust him? Moving on to confession of idolatry. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God again, their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. On the screen, this is back. This is not going in chronological order, by the way. You'll notice that the arrow is not progressively moving. It's, it's jumping around. The psalmist isn't necessarily trying to teach you history. He's just confessing. Oh, yeah, and then there was that one time I forgot. We're, we were at the mountain. We were at the mountain in Exodus 32. Exodus 32, just a couple of verses from that, says this. If I can find it. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 4. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So Aaron said, well, then take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Like, what? We just made it out of Egypt like not too long ago. Moses says, hey, I'm going to be right back. God's going to give us the law. And they're like, he's not getting back. He must have died. So what do we do? I don't know. Somebody make a golden calf and let's worship it. 
Now that sounds random to us, but remember, they're coming out of Egypt where the worship of false idols is very common. In fact, I've taught this before in classes that God's not only on a mission to rescue Israel out of Egypt, he is now going to be on a mission to get the Egyptian ways out of Israel. It's going to be this long process of sanctification. Psalm 106 goes on and tells us what God's response was. Therefore, God said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. This stood in the breach, I want you to think of a wall that's been battered down in a battle and there's this one hole where the, where the wall is torn down and that's the path that the enemy is like, oh, great, let's enter that way. And then you get that one crazy guy that stands there and says, nope, right? And it's like, you're standing there and like, every, they're just gonna mow you down, man. And which might be, the, might be the reality of that, but that's what Moses does. God says, move back, we're done here. And Moses says, wait, 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 wait. And he prays. It's this amazing Um, complex passage of scripture where we see God's severity and his justice and we also see the intercession of Moses and maybe the psalmist is taking a break here to say remember when Moses interceded and then you God didn't destroy them remember where he is God I'm here in exile and our people are still suffering would you save us may this intercession be something that turns away your wrath remember God's holiness in order to fight idolatry. And we can do that by always looking to Jesus. Am I guilty of placing anything before God? Of course I am. Are you? Are there areas where we might fall to temptation of placing things before God? In fact, if you don't think that you do because you don't commonly go home and make little things out of clay and bow down and worship them, remember, it's not just an idol fashion with human hands. It could be anything. I got to be on guard about my digital social media use, my relationships, my, my, my circumstances, my job, my career, all of these things that might, could come in the place of God. It could become an idol in my heart. And in fact, Colossians kind of clears it up to us in Colossians 3, 5, and it says covetousness is a form of idolatry. So even going back to the envy, when I'm sitting there and nobody even knows I'm sinning and I'm just coveting something that someone else has, that's a form of idolatry. In fact, it's prevalent in the, in the New Testament at the end of the book of 1 John. John even says, children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a big deal. But let's pretend that the Egypt, because I'm not, I don't actually know, I wasn't there. Let's pretend that the Israelites weren't trying to just come up with a brand new God. Let's pretend that they actually were just saying, you know what? There's this cloud of God's glory around the mountain and Moses is probably dead up there. That's the God that we obviously saved us, but we don't know how to image him, so he must look like this. Whether they were trying to make a new God and follow a new path or trying to just worship their God in the wrong form, either way, it's unacceptable. It broke the first two commands. So can I be guilty of worshiping the one true God, but in my own self-styled manner? In fact, what we find is that that's what King Saul does. He's going to try to worship God according to what he thinks is right, and Samuel's like, no. Your rebellion here in this moment is like the sin of divination to God. You can't worship God in some self-styled way. In fact, Jesus in John 4 tells us that the Father's seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. So I need to remember God's holiness and allow that to kind of help me combat idolatry in my life. But I also need to remember God's 
holiness for the sake of making sure that my worship of him is in truth, rooted in truth. One of the most saddest parts of this, the kind of the center and almost the end of his confession of sin is the confession of their unbelief. It's going to happen in Numbers 14, which is going to be right at the edge of the promised land, the first time I told you. They have the opportunity to go through. They don't. Psalm 106, verse 24 through 27 says, Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. No faith. They murmured in their tents. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. They, therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall into the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. It's a precursor to the captivity that would come eventually because of their disloyalty to him. But he tells this generation, you're murmuring, you don't want to go in? Then fine, you don't have to. Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4, just a couple of verses again, says this. Then all the congregation rep, uh, raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Oh, if we would just died in the land of Egypt. How many times have we heard this? Or if we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this new land? So remember, it used to be, why couldn't we just die in Egypt? Why does it have to be here at the Red Sea? Now it's, if we would just died in Egypt or in the wilderness on the way, why does it have to be at this new land? Our wives and our little ones are going to become a prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? In fact, let's choose a new leader and go back. This type of insurrection, this rejection of God's place was ultimately rooted in unbelief. I need to remember God's promises and fight unbelief in my life by, again, looking to Jesus. What has God accomplished through the person and work of Jesus? The promises that are available to me, and do I believe them? Is there certain situations in my life where I'm tempted to disbelieve? Again, Hebrews 3, I think Marcus even referenced this this morning. Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 9, um, says, Therefore the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on that day of testing in the wilderness. It's referring to the day that they were like, we can't go in there. The people are too big. God's, God's not going to come through for us. Let's go back to Egypt. Don't harden your hearts like that day where the fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. So take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Maybe you're a Christian here today and you're just tempted to not believe things because you just are a pessimist like I am sometimes. I know God said this, but I just don't really know if I trust that. Let me encourage you to fight that by remembering God's promises. Let me remind you that God has never broken a promise. In fact, I've told my children at school or the kids in my class, if you believe that God is not going to come through for you, you will be the first person in all of human history that God has failed. And I just don't honestly think that you're cool enough to be that person. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, think of the billions of people that God's been faithful to and you're the one person he's going to fail. I mean, come on. The, the reason is he, he doesn't fail. He doesn't fail. So we remember God's promises and we fight that unbelief. Look at what Jesus has accomplished. An unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. But if you're an unbeliever in here, let it be known that your unbelief is what is separating you from Jesus, your unbelief. 
It's a hard-heartedness of unbelief. You see it in Pharaoh, you see it in Saul, you see it all the time. God will allow the pride of people and their unbelief to be punished. If you so choose to reject Jesus, reject the way to be saved, God will let you do that or at least experience the consequences of your choice. But if you today hear his call, do not harden your hearts. Turn to him in faith and be saved. Look to Jesus who is the ultimate promise of God fulfilled and remember what he's promised. Romans 8, 28, he's promised to do all things for our good. Very close to the end, confession of iniquity. Iniquity is a big word that basically means like just really, really bad behavior. They've done some wicked deeds. This is the part in the story in the wilderness when they yoked themselves, the Baal of Peor. They ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds. A plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened. The plague was stopped. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. The context of that is seen in Numbers 25. I encourage you to take the time to read it. There's a lot going on with this false prophet named Balak. He's trying to say, hey, if I can't curse God's people, let's try this new plan where we're going to try to get God's people to just sin with us and become so polluted and so corrupt that God would have to destroy them because you just can't tell the difference between them and the world. This is something that we need to remember as well. I won't go into detail about what they were doing, Phineas obviously had enough of it and stood up and put an end to some of it. We need to remember the fear of God. Remember the fear of God and fight iniquity by looking to Jesus. We are not above some really terrible acts. I'm not above from falling into some gross, heinous sin. I will do that when I take my eyes off of Jesus and when I stop believing in his promises and I forget the fear of God. In fact, Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom It's the beginning of wisdom. People that lack wisdom lack fear of God. And I'm not talking about being afraid of him. Now, if you're an unbeliever in here and you're afraid of God, that might be appropriate. But for the Christian who there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, that doesn't mean that God is automatically someone we just treat as like buddy. God is our holy God. And we need to remember that. I love the C.S. Lewis quote in the book about uh, Chronicles of Narnia when he's talking to the Mr. Beaver's talking to the kids and they're talking about Aslan. They're like, I'm afraid to meet Aslan. Is he a tame lion? And they're like, of course he's not tame. He's a lion, but he's good. I'm not introducing you to the King Aslan, the kitty cat. I'm introducing you to King Aslan, the lion, ferocious and mighty, but good. Remember the fear of God and let's keep, help that keep us from iniquity. It confesses contention. It's a big word for another arguing, grumbling. They angered him at the waters of Meribah and it went ill with Moses on their account. They complained so much that Moses was so fed up that he disobeyed God because of the way that he was feeling because of their sin. Made his spirit bitter and he spoke rashly with his lips. This was seen in Numbers 20, 1 through 13. I won't take the time to read it, but basically the people are still complaining and grumbling and now they're getting even more violent in their threats. This contention, this arguing, this dissension, It's brought about, and Moses eventually is like, you know what, God told me to speak to the rock, but I'm so mad at you, I'm just going to hit the rock. He takes matters into his own hands, and he's disqualified from entering the land. This made me think, do I have contention in my life? I don't know, but I do know this. What's something that's clear is that I need to make sure that my, the commands of God are clearly in my remembrance so that I can fight that temptation to contention and arguing because 
Here's the point, I think, of that little section is that my attitude of contention and arguing and complaints can cause other people to stumble. This even made me like take a pause and think about my pastoral leader being Adam and Adam and Marcus and these guys. Does my attitude that I bring to the table with them ever cause them to stumble? And if it does, God forbid I be the reason they disqualify themselves, right? Moses gets mad at them, and now he has to pay for the price of his own choice. But the people were the ones that kind of pushed him over the edge. Am I guilty of pushing other people over the edge by my lack of faith? Philippians 2.14 commands us in the New Testament, do all things without grumbling or complaining or questioning. I remember when Adam taught through this years and years ago, that Greek word for grumbling was gongusmas. And I still remember it today. It's like one of those automatopoeias or whatever, like a word that sounds like what it is. And in Greek, it's gongusmas. And I got to be honest with you. I do this a lot. I don't use my words often, but in my heart, right? Yesterday, I'm trying to build things. You know, I do that all the time. It's very common that I can't find my pencil. It's very common that I drop things off of a ladder. It's very common that I misplace things all the time. And all I'm doing, it seems like, is working while gongusmossing. Gongusmoss, right? And I don't know if that's how you really pronounce it, but I've always remembered that because that's me sometimes too. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. And the thing that's really cool about that in the New Testament is that when you do, you will then shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. When we, not, when we live lives of not complaining and instead have gratitude, we shine as a light. Last and worstly, worstly, last and worst of all, confession of apostasy, 34 through 39. The psalmist says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them when they got into the land and said they mixed with the nations. They learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. The land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts. They played the whore in their deeds. This is going to cover the whole section of entering the promised land all the way to the exile. That covers, it's just one big, hey, they moved in, they were supposed to follow God's decrees, they didn't, they mixed in with the people, they started living lives just like the world around them, and then before long they were looking and doing things that they never ever would have thought they would have done. You think when they walked through the Red Sea and it said, then they believed God? You think if someone would have come up and said, hey, in like a couple like years you're going to be like sacrificing your kids to idols, to demons. What do you say about that? No, we won't. We'll never do such a thing. And yet here we are. How did they get there? Well, for one, it wasn't the same generation. They're already dead because of their sin. But their kids, they forgot. It should surprise us that in Deuteronomy, before Moses died, over and over and over, remember, remember, teach it to your kids. Remember, remember, Write it on your forehead if you have to. Doorpost of your house, remember. We need to remember the severity of rejecting God and fight apostasy by looking to Jesus. Back in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, we already talked about that. Not neglecting a great salvation. Hebrews 5 and 6 even goes on and talks about the warning against apostasy. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 9, I just referenced that where he was talking about 
Read it to your kids. Pass it on, whether you're sitting down or rising. But also ask yourself, are we guilty of making compromises right now to where our lives look a lot like the world around us? Could someone see us and see a difference? Is the way of the world infiltrating your heart? Is it infiltrating our church? Is it infiltrating our nation? I think we know the answer to a lot of these. In fact, we're living in kind of a culture where we are sacrificing our kids. That's for another time. God's response of discipline, Psalm 106. We're at the very end here. In light of all this, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations. He's talking about the captivity. So that those who hated them ruled over them. It's also talking about the times of judges. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Let it be known that God is going to bring about discipline to human sin. This isn't because God is a cosmic killjoy just waiting to zap you when you mess up. But God will bring about discipline, especially in the lives of his children, because he's a good father. But it's rooted in his love. Verse 43, many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, there's my favorite word of the whole psalm. Nevertheless, in light of 43 verses so far, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. Remember, if you want a light and happy psalm about his covenant, go to Psalm 105. It's probably the one I should have chosen. But then relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied among all those who held him captive. And so he goes into his last petition. So God, then save us. Back to me, the the psalmist. O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations. If you cause them to be pitied among all their nations because you remembered your covenant, then let that be true of me today in my life. I want to see that. I want to be a part of this salvation that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. This is again my request and now I'm ending with praise. So blessed be the Lord. Hallelujah. The God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. Just like when I tell you I'm done. Amen. We made it. Praise the Lord. So here's a couple of things of application. Obviously, the biggest form of application is to remember. Remember. That's what we need to do today. But two points. As we enter this Advent season, let us enter with a renewed commitment to prayer because prayer will help us stay humble. But I want to remind you that prayer is more than just asking God for things. So the navigators have this really helpful thing I use in class called the prayer hand, and that's just another way to remember those things. Include adoration, include confession and thanksgiving and intercession and petition. If those are big words that you don't know, write them down and look them up later. But also intercession is just praying for somebody else. Petition is bringing a request. We know what thanksgiving is. We know what confession is. Adoration is praise. But then also let's enter this Advent season with a renewed commitment to God's word. Why? so that we remember. That's the whole thing. David is this great king. And then in the time when kings were supposed to go to war, he's hanging out on his, on his rooftop and he gets lazy and he forgets. And then David's demise. Right? You can trace it. We do it in class. You can see it. When the humble bring themselves to the Lord, they are exalted. When the proud and the arrogant bring themselves to the Lord, they are brought low. It's the theme of First and Second Samuel in all of the kings. 
So let's go to God's word to remember our history and our daily fight for faith. I'm going to pray for us and ask Dale and those guys to come forward. But as I pray, I want to kind of bring your attention to why I chose the song that we're going to sing at the end. It's a brand new song. You're not going to know it at first, but I'm going to ask you that as you learn it to sing it with us. The chorus of the song is like my heart cry all week. Every time I've gotten done studying, I just keep singing the chorus of the song. You are good. You are God. What I earned is not what I got. What I deserve is not what I received. What more could I say about him except for my God is love? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for the, for the goodness and the glory of your kindness seen in history. God, I know that this might seem like an awkward transition to go from an, a season of thanksgiving and positive thinking about all of the wonderful, amazing works that you've shown us in your covenant. But God, help us to have just a good, healthy, subtle reminder, or even a bold reminder of where we've come from. Help us remember our sin. God, not for the sake so that we could look at our sin and feel discouraged or beaten down by it, because if we're a Christian here today, we have been forgiven. We've brought our sins to you. We've cast them at your feet and we've found forgiveness. So God, help us not to remember where we've come from for the sake of falling into despair or depression over what we've done, but help us instead to use where we've come from as a catalyst for great praise to you. That catalyst that leads us to say, what I earned is not what I received. And the only reason I didn't receive it is because you are faithful. You're faithful to your promise. And God, on this side of the cross, you've proven that through Jesus. God, you sent Christ who knew no sin to take on sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Romans is very clear that you died when we didn't deserve it. You came at the time we were enemies of you. So God, I pray if there's someone in this room that is a Christian that is beaten down by their past, that they would let that go, not forgetting it, but let it go to you, trusting that you're the one who removes their sin as far as the east is from the west. You're the one whose love is higher than the heavens are above the earth. It's your job to forgive sin. But God, if there's someone in this room that's not saved, they haven't come to repent of their sin, God, I pray that they would see that the consequence of their continued unbelief and rebellion leads nowhere. The lies of this world will tell you that it goes somewhere, but it just doesn't. So God, I pray that you would bring about salvation, not at the result of my faulty words and sermon, but God, that you would bring about salvation in the hearts of people listening, God, because of your great goodness and your commitment to your promises, God, that you would bring life out of their dead heart, that it would begin to beat today freshly and anew, that they would turn to you in repentance and that they would trust you for maybe even the first time, even after being in church for years and years and years, God, that they would repent and turn. God, may you be praised today. Thank you for the opportunity to sing now. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. 
Again, that's www.sivehope.org.